0: Welcome to the Bridge Church podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth and we pray it's life-changing. And we hope to see you soon.
1: And welcome again to Bridge Church. I'm Rasul Berry. I'm the teaching pastor here. Our lead pastor, James, has... uh, taking a break for a little bit, and um, we are concluding today our series on the book of Ruth with the theme of rewritten. Uh, It's been an incredible journey, and uh, Ruth actually reminds me of what I consider to be one of the most iconic moments in television history. It happened before most of us in the room were born, but thanks to the magic of (laughs) reruns and the internet, we could still catch it. But this was a time in Chicago when there were temporary layoffs, easy credit ripoffs, and many people were scratching and surviving. But somehow we still called them good times. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now, the context was This was, uh, the family were living in the projects. In the 70s, there was widespread poverty as a combination of white flight, the globalization of an economy that shut down most of the industries in the cities, and of course, institutional racism, all combined to create this challenge of poverty that was depicted so powerfully in good times. But yet, in the midst of that story, There's also this other story that's unfolding. And for the first time in TV history, there was actually a a black husband and wife that was together in a family, James and Florida Evans. And and the the show took them through this journey of them just living and having good times in the midst of very bad times. But several seasons in, we were met with the tragic news that the father and husband in the house, James Evans, had died. And Florida, who tries to hold it together and, and, and leads, you know, the, still is now leading the family, has this moment where she's cleaning up after the repast and after the funeral. She sees some images that remind her of, you know, her now deceased husband, and she picks up this unfortunate punch bowl. And finally, in this moment, just the overwhelming time, just kind of all of these things just came together and she just crashes it onto the ground and cries out. And in that moment, the kids kind of run out and all of a sudden this person who had been considered to be the pillar of their family was revealed to also be in mourning and in grief. And that is the exact context in the book of Ruth. That this takes place, it tells us, during the time of the judges, a time which should have been a time of great celebration because uh, the book of Joshua kind of sees the people of Israel going into the promised land. Now they're in the promised land, but instead of success and flourishing, they just find more and more hardship because it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result of that, there was this downward cycle of things just breaking down in society. This is the cause of the economic peril that Naomi and her husband Elimelech find themselves in in Bethlehem that causes them to leave Israel and go to Moab, where their sons, Kilion and Malan, then find wives for themselves. But... As this tragedy unfolds, and we discovered in Ruth chapter One, very quickly, not only does Ruth or uh, Naomi lose her husband, but also she loses their, her sons. In distress and in distraught, feeling very much like that moment with Florida, she tells. Her two now daughter-in-laws just stay here in Moab. I'm going to go back. Clearly, God has forsaken me, has rejected me. I'm just going to go back with my people and just kind of just call it a life. But Ruth decides, no, I will stick with you. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. In spite of Naomi's refusal and resistance, Ruth says, I ain't going nowhere. And she takes the journey from Moab back to Bethlehem with Naomi. And this is a story, you know, it's interesting that when there is this kind of peril, when there, when there are hard times that happen, oftentimes women are disproportionately impacted. When economic disparities persist, we still see a gender gap in pay. And then on top of that, we also come to discover that Ruth is a Moabite woman, which means that when she comes into Israel, she now is an ethnic and racial minority, one in which the people of Israel had beef and hostility toward because of a history of past racial discrimination. And so we can relate to this moment because even in our own cultural context, black women experience poverty more than any other group. But whoever we are and wherever we are, we still have to come face to face with this question of what do we do when life becomes broken? What do we do in that moment where we just feel like God is forsaken and rejected and everything that we thought was gonna go right has fallen to pieces? What do we do? And that's where it's this amazing moment that God chooses to hone in on this story of Naomi and Ruth in the midst of all that's going on in this period in time. And I think I can personally relate to this because I saw my mother have to bury my biological father when she was 26 years old, and I was just six. And as a single mom, taking care of these two young boys and trying to do as best you can, holding out several jobs to make it, Happen, And yet, by the time we get to Ruth's third chapter, and now in the fourth where we are, they have a sliver of hope that emerges. Naomi discovers that Boaz is what they call a kinsman redeemer. See, a kinsman redeemer was one that when a husband died, or a family died, this is the definition, that there was a male relative who, according to various laws in the Pentateuch, which are the first five books in the Bible, had the privilege or responsibility, depending on their perspective, to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, in danger, in need. They were called a kinsman redeemer. And this was especially relevant in this particular scenario where you have this widow in Naomi who is beyond years of childbearing and so there's nobody who's going to marry her. And then you have this, this, this foreign woman in Ruth who also is a widow as well. And, and Boaz sees this scenario and understands the, 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 the spirit of the law is that, God, that we would rally around, that God would want us to rally around and take care of these people in need that were vulnerable. But we also find at the end of chapter 3 that there is a one slight little hiccup in the mix. You see, Boaz wasn't what we would consider to be next of kin. There was somebody that was closer uh, to Naomi relatively than he was, that was a closer relative. And so at the close of chapter 3, he commits, even though he is now, he desires to step in and stand in the gap and marry Ruth and continue their family line, but he has to talk to this next of kin first to see what would happen because that was the rules. And so in chapter four, we find in verse one, he immediately does this. It says, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about in chapter three came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he the family redeemer, went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. You see, Boaz had that kind of juice. We discovered in chapter 2 that he was a man of means and wealth. And we see right now, look, he just said sit down. And they were like, okay, (laughs) let's do it. And so he uses and leverages the considerable amount of privilege and power that he has on behalf of these two people. And this is what he says. He says, He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. So he, he puts this challenge, he puts it right into the lap of this man he says if you want to redeem it do it but if you do not want to redeem it tell me so that i will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and i am next after you and this guy says i want to redeem it (laughs) you ever had this experience where it's like okay you have this amazing golden opportunity maybe it's like a job interview, and you've been struggling and sending out resumes for a long time, and, and you just need one thing to go well, right? Like, you just need one scenario. Like, you just need the trains to be on time that day. Like, that, that's all you need. for. And then that one thing, uh, we regret to inform you that uh, there's uh, some trouble ahead on the lines. And, and that one thing, the only thing that needed to happen right in order for the thing to go well doesn't happen right. Anybody ever been there before? Like, you're running late, and it's like, Dad, I just need just one thing, and that's where they find that there's something that you know we see in, in chapter three. We think we're going to have this like fairy tale ending and happily ever after. And now all of a sudden, the guy says, "Nope, actually, yeah, I want that." But Boaz still has yet one other thing to communicate. It says then Boaz said on the day. You buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on the property. <laughs> you see, there's a shrewdness to what Boaz is, is, is brought up and the way he does it. He, he recognizes that he's talking to these, these men who have means and, and they're, thinking just, they're thinking about this as a real estate proposition, and so he's like, oh, okay, I can acquire more land. I just gotta pay for that extra. Okay, I might have to scrimp a little bit here and there, but this is a good investment. So yes, I will buy that. But now Boaz actually takes a turn and says so actually there's there's more to this story than just a simple land deal. There are people involved. There's, there's this woman, that, you know, part of our family, Naomi, who's involved in this situation, and, 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 this, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And, and so part of the law, the spirit of the law with the kinsman redeemer wasn't just about you getting land, but also taking care of these people. So that means you'd have to redeem the people. Now, notice he doesn't particularly show all of his cards of saying what he desires and the fact that he's really willing to step in. He just presents this information. But according to the spirit of the law, this one who was closest to Naomi was supposed to go and step in and, and on behalf on their behalf. And let's see how he responds. The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. He Once he realizes, oh wait, this isn't just some quick real estate investment, I can't just flip this and go into a neighborhood that I don't care anything about and just see it as an opportunity for profit, and because that's not what you're offering me here, now all of a sudden I'm not interested. You see, the issue is justice costs something. We can't just see something that is broken and go, okay, I want to repair that and not think that there can't be reparations for that which needs to be repaired. You see, if, you see if, if we really want to see change happen, if we really want to see wholeness take place, then it costs something. we got to put skin in the game to repair what was systematically broken. <laughs> but he's not willing to do that. That's not on his agenda. That's not in his uh, priority list. For him, the cost was too high. Ruth and Naomi just wasn't worth it. Wasn't worth the risk. And look at what he explains why. He said, I will ruin my own inheritance. Cause see what would happen is if he marries Ruth and if they have children now, he would have to split all of everything that he owns across the board between the kids that he already got and these new other kids. See, you see this thing has, affects generations, right? We can't just look at something and say, oh, that happened 150 years ago. It got nothing to do with today. Like this is, this still like continues to echo on. But imagine what that feels like to experience the rejection from people who just say, you know, you're not worth the cost of what it takes to make you whole. What part of your story needs redemption? We all have had those experiences where there have been things that have happened in our lives that have been broken. People have broken those things. Rejection hurts. The brokenness is real. The lost dreams, the lost time that we've experienced, those things are real. But we see a different story with Boaz. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. In verse 9 and 10, he decides, he t- the story takes a turn, and notice he doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't skip a beat. He was like, okay, thank you, brother. You don't want to be interested in this? I will step up, and I will do this. And notice the connection of what he says. He makes this immediately public and connects it and ties it to Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband, Kilion, and Malon, which were the two children. He doesn't just see this as this love story about him and Ruth. He understands that there's a bigger story that is being unfolded in the aspect of legacy that has to continue on that definitely involves and relates to Ruth, but it's bigger than both of them. And notice that he says, I'm willing to buy this. I'm willing to take this on. I'm willing to do what was this other guy, who we don't even give his name because it's not worth the time, won't do. And I can relate to this because I remember when my mom ended up, you know, announcing that she was going to get married to my stepfather, and he had two young boys, and then it was her bringing her boys into this house, And so all of a sudden, we were living together, and it's like, you never know what's, how that's going to change the dynamic of family. How is this person who is not biologically connected and related to us going to relate to us in this stead? And what we experienced was the fact that even though he wasn't directly tied, everything that came into the house was all of ours equally. There were no favorites. There were, and, and, that, and that changed the trajectory of our own lives, the fact that he was willing to step in and step up. And too often, men don't step in and step up. Sisters, can I talk to the brothers real quick right now? Because you see, the reality is, like they say in Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. You may not be able to change the fact that you have privilege, but you can change how you use it on behalf of those around you. Boaz decides to do that. And there's three key takeaways that I think we can have from looking at this story. One is that Jesus rewrites our stories. Jesus rewrites our stories. Now you're like, wait a minute, where are you coming with Jesus in the midst? We were just talking about Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. Where did this come from? But stay with me. I'm so glad you asked that question, by the way. I'm excited to answer it. Because you see, Boaz is a type of Christ. Pastor James mentioned this last week, and someone came up to me after was like, what what does that mean, a type of Christ? Was that like he was a pre-incarnation of Christ? Like, how does that work? And in the Greek, the word that is translated, because that's a term that is a technical theological term that we see in the New Testament, and it's from the Greek, typos, or typos. And it means literally an impression or a mark based on a characteristic of somebody. An impression or a mark. All right, let me, let me explain it this way. Back in the day, there was this ancient device that people used to communicate. It was called a typewriter. You might see these in museums sometimes, but some of us had typing class and had to deal with correction ribbons when you had to. Use it. Back in the day, it wasn't just delete. <laughs> there were consequences to when you type something, right? Like that, that. You know, some of y'all don't know nothing about that, and that's okay. I'll explain it to you. So with a typewriter, the reason why it got its name type was because the word type meant to leave an impression or a mark. Now in part of the uh, anatomy of a typewriter, if you will, there was what you call a type bar. These were metal uh, pieces that had letters on them that literally when you press the button on the key, on on the typewriter key, would jump up and leave an impression through the ribbon of ink onto the paper. And so what the scripture is saying is that in the Old Testament, God gave us breadcrumbs of people who were leaving an impression of Jesus all the way there. So at the end of the day in the New Testament, we see and spell it out and go, oh, this was Jesus all the time. So when we see. Boaz, as a kinsman redeemer, think of the picture. It's saying that, hey, in the law, it was instituted that someone who was your relative would step in in your time of need to intercede for you when you could not do anything yourself. In the incarnation, God steps into our situation, becomes flesh and blood like us to redeem us and save us from a situation we could not save ourselves from. He is our kinsman redeemer. Some of y'all ain't get that. That's just one clip. We got more. Remember, in, uh, and even to this day, we see Passover and Easter usually come around the same time. And some people are like, why is that? They usually, like this pastime, time, the same exact days. Well, there's this picture where we see when God was, you know, in battle with Egypt and let, trying to let the people go because they were in slavery. The last of the 10 plagues, he said, all right, this is what I'm going to do. The death angel is going to come by and judge those who have not trusted in my salvation. But for those who want to trust in my salvation and not in their own energy, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna take a lamb, you're gonna slay that lamb, you're gonna take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and the death angel will pass by your house. So then Jesus, at the, before his crucifixion says, hey, this Passover thing, this was actually always about me. So then John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb was a type to give you an impression of who Jesus was supposed to be. We could go on. Abraham, okay, he has to uh, go and sacrifice a ram in the bush. And then it's like, wait a minute. His son, Isaac, is like, Where, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. He's like, oh, word? Okay. He climbs up. He ties him in right at the when he's about to kill him. He says, wait a minute. There's a ram in the bush. You don't have to kill your son because I have provided a sacrifice. Jeho- sacrifice Jehovah Jireh will provide. On another mountain, a mount called Calvary. Come on, all right. I, I, I. These are types, these are types, these are types. <laughs> and it gives us a picture. So John, and, and, and it's funny because you see the disciples like putting this stuff together, like, oh, snap. So in John chapter eight, it says that the uh, Pharisees, they bring this woman that was caught in adultery and they throw her at Jesus's feet and says, okay, the law says that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? Now, they were trying to get him hemmed up because, you see, at this point, Israel was a colony of Rome. They did not have the ability or the authority to execute anyone. And on top of that, Jesus has gotten his reputation as someone who was compassionate and, and toward uh, women and yet at the same time was just and holy. So they're trying to blow that whole situation up and say, what should we do? Now, furthermore, a little bit of a sidetrack but relevant, Notice that they said that she was caught in adultery. Last time I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery. Where's the man? You ever notice that when there's issues of sexual scandal, oftentimes it's the woman that has the uh, sense of focus and the man has nothing to do with it? Takes, it takes two, right? But Jesus sees through all that. This is what it's the records that he does. It says he stoops down and he just starts writing on the ground. <laughs> They're still yelling and talking about him talking to him. He just ignores them and keeps writing on the ground. He writes so long down there that it says that the people started to walk away, and he's just writing on the ground. Finally, he gets up and asks, uh, first of all, he, asks, he addressed her directly the first time we see in the text. He says, um, woman, where, where are they? Right. Notice he doesn't call her adulteress. Notice he doesn't, he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. She knew what the time it was. Look at what she calls him. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. In this moment, Jesus literally rewrites her story. They wrote it with condemnation. He writes it with grace. They wrote it with rejection. He writes it with acceptance. And in that moment, there's, the disciples go, okay, he's rewriting our stories. How many of us have Jesus rewritten our story? You see, some of us got a pass, right? Like, we wasn't always all cleaned up. It wasn't always at like 6 o'clock on a Sunday we was coming to church. Like, there were some other things we were going to do on the weekend, and there were some other things that people labeled and identified and typecast us in. And in the midst of that, Jesus takes the correction ribbon, deletes, 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 and then rewrites. Rewrites, you're now my daughter. Rewrites, you're now my son. Completely changes our story and the trajectory of it. See, our culture likes to cancel. (laughs) Jesus likes to cancel our sin debt. (laughs) That's what he cancels. That's his cancel culture. Our culture likes to shame. He likes to accept. Or our culture likes to justify the sin and go, hey, it ain't nothing wrong with adultery. We even got websites for that kind of thing. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. But he doesn't just rewrite our story. He also redeems our story. He is the kinsman redeemer. Look at what happens next. All right, So already so far, we got this thing. So Boaz at this point has addressed the issue of land, but then there's more. And he makes another declaration. He says, I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess. Milan's widow as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his own town. You are witnesses today. Oh, man, there's so much here. So he turns his attention and says, oh, and by the way, that, that, that aspect that you didn't want to have nothing to do with, like you just wanted this to be about like land, like, but, you know, there's a bigger story. See, the difference between gentrification and moving in and investing in some place is, one, you got skin in the game, and you actually care about the people that are there, and the other, you just see stuff as dollar signs, by the way. That's the difference, right? So he says, I'm not coming in to try to gentrify this situation. I'm coming in to redeem this whole thing. Your people, my people, Ruth. And he goes across ethnic lines and racial lines to do it. He's like, yep, I'm going to claim you. We're going to walk down the street together. You will mow by this, and that's cool with me. But look at what else what happens. It says, ask for my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's, In order to perpetuate this man and his name and his property, that means that they have to have babies. Now, you may have remembered that she had been married for 10 years and they had been uh, without child. They're understanding what she was bearing. So what Boaz is doing right now, he's saying, by faith, I am calling those things are not as if they are. And we're going to redeem this entire. I believe that God is going to redeem this situation. He's like, oh yeah, y'all witnesses today. Y'all about to see something today. Parenthetically, let me just, why are we on this aspect of witnesses? Brothers and sisters, if you're with someone who does not want to claim you in public, it is time to move on and walk away. If, if, if somebody that you hollering at like, you know what, you know, I don't want to just be in the drama. I want people in my business, you know, so, so we ain't going to make it like official, you know, we ain't, no social media. You know, we just, we just going to meet just me and you. I want your people to get involved because, you know, drama and people. No, 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 no. Boaz says, you are witnesses today. This is my woman. And, you know, Ruth is like, this is my man. No questions, no games. And that's the, be, you deserve somebody who's willing to claim you in public, not just be with you in private. Okay, that's another ceremony for another day. All right, your witnesses today, your witnesses. Carolyn Custis James put this entire context in this situation because, often in this way, it says the biblical story is told against the backdrop of fallen human culture. This backdrop is not the Bible's message. But serves to intensify its message. Because we have to come and deal with some things. That I, I, there's some tensions that we read oftentimes as we read the, the text of the Bible and go, oh man, that sounds really brutal. And there have been accusations that are very popular nowadays to say, well, you know, the, the Bible is oppressive toward people of color, of toward women, toward, you know, like, you don't, you don't, like, God ain't for that kind of sense of liberation. And what people do is they point the situation in which, which bad things happen and are recorded in the Bible and, and, and assume that what is described is prescribed. But as Pastor James mentioned, there's a difference between description telling you what happened and prescription telling you what ought to happen. And what we see clearly boldly in the midst of this, in one of these instances in which this happens at the end of the book of Judges, I won't get into it, but there's, I mean, there's a rape that happens. This woman is torn into pieces. And people describe this and look at this and go, look at how terrible and awful God is that he cosigns on this. But what they miss is that the whole context of the book is that the people have rebelled and rejected God. And that's why they are oppressing these people. The fact that, God even put Ruth as the key of the story, shows what he's trying to retell and rewrite in the midst of this fallen and broken culture. I got to see this up close recently. I, uh, I got the opportunity to go to Sweden a couple weeks ago. And while I was there, I met this uh, woman named Anahita Parson. She was from Iran, and she arrived as an Iranian refugee. Part of her story was her husband was a political uh, per- persecuted person in Iran, so they fled to Turkey, and they snuck into the country illegally to flee for their lives. She was pregnant at the time that they fled in. When they finally caught up with them in Turkey, she had a six-month ch- year, six-month-old child that they put in the prison with her. Due to some pressure, some just divine intervention, they were able to escape And flee Turkey, so now they found themselves in Denmark. While they were in Denmark, these uh, couple Christians come to their door. She opens the door, and they, you know, want to talk to her. She's like, no, no, thank you, I'm not interested. She closes the door. They come back about a week or so later, and this time they just give her a Bible in Farsi, which was her language. She just takes it. Not sure why she said she took it, but she was intrigued. So she takes it, and she starts to just hide in the bathroom and just starts reading this account, and all of a sudden she's seeing this God who, who loves, and seeing a perspective of a God who cares and loves women in a way she had never seen before, and, and that becomes attractive to her. But one day she got so caught up in what she was reading that her husband caught her reading the Bible and began to physically abuse her. So she found herself in this moment where she's like, do I, do I choose, like, what do I do here? Like, do I stay in this situation and just kind of Forget everything that I've read, and she decides to flee now again with her young child and go from Denmark to Sweden, which is how she ends up in Sweden. Now, this woman came to faith and decided to actually help the immigrant population and community, which is growing significantly in Stockholm. She is a minister in the Church of Sweden. And y'all check this out, right? At the church that we met at. They actually have multiple services. Now, by and large, the reason why this was fascinating was that the Church of Sweden is widely seen as a dying church. So we were like, why did you decide to connect and associate with this church? And it's like totally like services in Swedish. She said that God had called her to be there, and now they have a Swedish service and a Persian service that's in Farsi, and the Farsi one is larger than the Swedish one in Sweden. And she's now giving out scriptures and Bibles like the ones that she was given. God has redeemed her story, is redeeming her life and helping her to see that she, got, she, she now has this great ministry to women and to helping them see who it is that God cares for and wants to walk with them. With And it, I mean, and her courage, I mean, she said all this and just had nothing but joy, even in spite of these crazy situations. Her daughter was there helping translate some things with us. It was just an amazing experience. But this is what she experienced and realized. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. This is what it looks like to take privilege to to take power and offer it for those who are in need. Let's look at what this contrast says. He was rich in heaven, being worshipped by angels, second person of the Trinity, nothing but complete perfection all around him. And it says that he chose to be born into a stinky barn, surrounded by farm animals, with a poor family of Palestinians. Who couldn't afford even to bring lambs to sacrifice, had to use doves because they were broke. And in the midst of that, lives this life and ultimately is persecuted, arrested extrajudiciously by a corrupt justice system, executed for that. And he says, I did this all for you I have, so that I could transfer my righteousness into your deficit of a bank account. Anybody ever have a deficit in a bank account? You see that negative and there's nothing you can do about it. There's insufficient funds and, there's, and we just broke. And he says, I saw your situation and I have deposited infinite, infinite righteousness into your account. And in order to do that, I had to become poor so that you could become rich. Look at the reaction. What would happen? Think about what our society would look like if the wealthy decided to use that kind of privilege and become poorer for the sake of those who were in poverty. What would it look like if men would use that sense of power and privilege for those who didn't have it? What would it look like if we, because you know we all have aspects of privilege, right? Like, we all do. If we decide to leverage that for those who were in a desperate situation? Well, we get to see a picture of the response of what happens when that occurs in the people in their response to Boaz in his declaration. In verse 11, it says, "All the people who were at the city gate—the city gate was where it was jumping, y'all. That was like you know downtown. It was a mixture of city hall plus." the block, plus all of that mixed into one. And it's like, and they were all at the city gate, including the elders, and they said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephaphra, and your name well-known in Bethlehem. (laughs) they, 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 They shout out the patriarchs of Israel and go, we want this Moabite woman, this foreigner, to be like Rachel and Leah who birthed most of the the children of Israel, the the tribes. But then look at what the women say to Naomi. The women said, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well-known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Oh my gosh. Do you see the incredible story of redemption that has just happened? She, Naomi, comes into Bethlehem and says, don't even call me Naomi anymore because it means blessed. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has turned his back on me. And these same people that she said this to now don't call her bitter. They call her blessed. They said, you are blessed and your name, may your name become well known in Israel. And we know that that request has been made known because we know some Naomi's in the house, right? And we've been led in worship by a woman named Naomi. Her name has become famous throughout Israel. And then look at what it says. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loved you. Like, look, God ain't forgotten you. He's redeemed you in your old age. And your daughter-in-law who loved you is better than seven sons. Now, in this culture... People perceive that having a son was worth at least seven daughters. They flip it and realize that this woman who was a foreigner was actually worth more than any sons because of her righteousness, because of her character, and because of what she had done on behalf of Naomi. You see, God has redeemed this situation and said they might have called you foreigner, but now we see you as a child of God, Ruth. You are blessed. Well, the last thing is Jesus rescues our stories. He rescues. I mean, this would be enough if this was the end. But wait, there's more. There's more, y'all. But the reality is the turnaround and this redemption, even as incredible as it is, it doesn't negate the fact that there's still a lot of pain in Naomi's life. She still lost her husband. She still lost the sons that she gave birth to. And that's still a reality that we all find, too, when sometimes, oftentimes in the body of Christ, we, we don't want to deal with those kind of wounds. And so we just try to go too fast past people's pain and just try to put the happily ever after. But this is not heaven, y'all. We still live in a broken and fallen world where, where it's still difficult for many of us. And we still bear the pains of things that people have done to us physically, emotionally. The abandonment that we oftentimes experience. And that's something that we bring with us, even as we say and recognize, yes, God is blessed. And look at what happens. It says, Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. His nanny. The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him, they named him Obed, which means servant. But did you notice? It says, A son has been born to Naomi. Because of Ruth's faithfulness, because of the the, the child that Ruth gave birth to, they are saying that in a sense, spiritually speaking, God has replaced what you had lost and that there's still a sense of comfort for you, Naomi. And now you get to raise this child. The, The story ends, and this is where the rescue takes place, with a genealogy. Now, many of us, this is the point in which we turn out and just completely turn the page when we see the genealogy. But the genealogy is when it gets good, y'all. The genealogy is where it's at. The next time we see Ruth's name in the genealogy is in Matthew in the first chapter. And just so you know, by the way, uh, genealogies weren't meant to list every single person Whoever existed. And sometimes, because the word father or mother could be used not just directly as someone who just gave birth, but someone who was a grandparent or who was an ancestor, which is why they said to Naomi, You have a son now. But if we go to Matthew chapter 1, it says this, and it gives this accounting. And it says, from Abraham to David, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Then if you skip down, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Then if you go down, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. (laughs) You see, what's happening here was a rescue. And in this genealogy, one of the things that's so fascinating is that in the uh, Jewish system, they would follow lineage through the father. And yet in this genealogy, there are three women that are named. And when you start to know the backstory of the three women, you start to get ready to shout right here. Can I explain it to you real quick? All right. Tamar was also a widow who was about to be stoned and burned by her own father for being an immoral woman. Because they had seen and discovered that she had had sex. But in the midst of that, he would later come to realize that she was more righteous than him because she had, he had withheld his sons from her, being, her right for them to continue on her lineage. And so when they just called her immoral, that's the name that they refer to her in Genesis chapter 39 when it occurs. Now she's referred to as a heir to the throne, as someone who is royal whose name is worth to be mentioned. That's one woman number one. The second one, Rahab. Rahab, we find in Jericho, she is listed as Rahab the prostitute. She was caught up in a aspect of sex work and sex trade. And and so when the spies came in order to see and see what God had done, Jericho was this huge fortress with a huge wall. They happened upon Rahab who says, hey, we've heard about what your God has done. We've heard about this guy. Yo, I want to be on team God and leave team pagan. And so remember me. And so as a result of that, they say, yo, we're going to remember you. And when our God delivers this place to us, you're not going to be touched. So then this is the first time that we just see Rahab's name without the disclaimer, the prostitute. She's been rewritten. Her story's been rewritten. (laughs) Then we got Ruth, who we often see as the Moabite, the Moabite, the Moabite, not us, not connected to us, not part of the lineage. Now we start to discover that. First of all, you notice that Boaz and probably what gave him the perspective to have this type of compassion toward her is because that was his mama. He remembered, he remembered Rahab and what, what someone had done to her and the kindness that he had, she, he had seen. And so he says, yo, this outsider is not really an outsider because she's somebody that I can see God's image and presence in. And so then uh, Boaz decides to roll with her. But then it says, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. No longer the Moabitess. No longer the widow. Her name has been rewritten. In the genealogy, And then it goes, okay, so then, unbeknownst um, to anybody, Obed, Father Jesse, and Jesse, Father King David, who's not just a king in Israel, but the king that is the typified person that is, oh, there's that word again, a type of Christ. Because, you see, David was a shepherd. He was a shepherd, and he'd end up defeating a giant that no one else could slay. And then so that was just a preview of the fact that there was going to be one who says, I am the good shepherd. I lead all those who were, I go after the, I leave the 99 and go after the one. And I'm going to defeat the giant of sin and death and Satan that no man could slay. And the last part of this genealogy, and we should get excited here. It says, and Jacob, Father Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Because of Naomi's faithfulness, because of Ruth's faithfulness, because of Boaz's faithfulness, that they end up being the ones who usher in the Messiah to come. That's a rescue story. So what does that mean for us? It means that Jesus is rewriting our story, even in the midst of things that we can't see. They didn't know that that was going to happen. They didn't know that they would be listed in the names of those who would be in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's important for us to know because sometimes... And especially those moments of suffering, it seems like God is just silent. We feel like as we pray, the the, the prayers just hit the ceiling and come back to the floor. Because if God was doing something, we would say, if he could hear, then he would do something. He wouldn't just leave us in that situation. And this is why it's so important for us to do the thing that is why this is written there for us, and that is to remember. That is to remember. Remember. Oftentimes, we see in the Old Testament that the saints would just forget what God had done. He delivers them from Egypt. They go into the wilderness. They're like, hey, we ain't going to food. You know, you just leave us here to starve to death. And then God provides food. And it's like, well, we ain't got no meat to eat. We just got this manna thing. And then continue a battle after battle after battle, and they would forget. Forgetting what God has done leads us to sin. It leads us to the sin of doubt. It leads us to the sin of just, just, just trusting in our own self and not in his own work because we forget. This is why this genealogy is important. It's a reminder of the fact that don't forget what Jesus has done. And this is why Job says, while he experienced his own suffering and his own trials, but I know my Redeemer lives. Do you know? Do you know that your Redeemer lives? Do you realize that he is still in and around this? What do you need to trust Jesus to redeem today? What do you need to trust Jesus to experience? In my own life, I've seen this play itself out. As the band, you can come up. I'm closing, y'all. I'm done. But, you know, uh, my wife and I are celebrating 18 years of marriage July 7th, a week from today. But um, soon, shortly after we were married, um, one of the things I was excited about was being able to kind of continue on this sense of legacy that I had experienced. Um, I became a stepfather when uh, we got married, and just as my stepfather had showed that faithfulness to me, I wanted to show that faithfulness as well to Ariana But I was also excited about continuing on with our own family, too, and and just seeing that thing grow. And the closest we got was uh, we had the scenario where finally we had to rush her to the hospital. And we found out that she had an ectopic pregnancy, which meant that she almost died. And because of the surgery, the chances of us being able to conceive were very, very low. Over the next few years, we would continue to try. This is, I'm doing ministry full-time, and we're praying, and, and it's just not happening. And just thought, wow, God, I thought you had more in the story for me and for us. That same summer that that happened, we ended up uh, serving in this summer mission trip that involved a band and music, and we sense God calling us to be a part of that pro- process. And so for eight years, we worked with musicians and artists and trained them, and uh, a weird thing started to happen. They started calling Tamika Mama Berry. They started calling me Papa Berry. Just spontaneously, that just became this thing. And then before we knew it on Mother's Day, they would text her, and then Father's Day, they would call me and just, and just thank us for their investment in their lives. And before I realized God had given us spiritual children all over the country and all over the world that looked to us in that way, that there was a sense of redemption in that story. There was still pain there, there were still scars there, but there was a sense in which God was telling something that was deeper and greater than what we could have anticipated. And that same story is being told in each of us. And we notice because Jesus doesn't, when he comes with his resurrected body, he doesn't just leave it there, but he shows us the nail scarred prints in his hands and his feet. The scars are still there from the trial, but the glorified body is still there in the resurrection. And that's what he offers us. I don't know what your particular situation is that needs to be redeemed. I don't know what your situation that needs to be, the sense of which you see God is rewriting your story. But wherever it is, we have to realize and remember that this is not the full sense of the story. In Hebrews, it tells us that those saints of the old in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that God, that, Abraham, by faith, believed. Sarah, by faith, believed. But it also says that they did not live to see the full expression of the promise that they were given. And it explains why. So that those of us who would come later would be able to be a part of it and experience the goodness of God. Sometimes God doesn't show us the full allotment of what he has for us so that others can be blessed by our faithfulness. And they can look back and go, wow, they trusted God even though they couldn't see how. God is redeeming our stories. He's rewriting your story. Will you trust him enough to believe? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that you redeem, you rewrite, and you rescue our stories. God, wherever there's pain right now, wherever there's brokenness, wherever there's despair, we pray that you would help us to uh, trust you. to tell a better story. God, I just pray that you would help us to see through your spirit. You have not forgotten. Those prayers aren't bouncing off the ceilings. They're they're hearing, you're hearing from heaven and deliverance is on the way because that's who we are and that's whose we are. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of the things that we do here on most Sundays is we have a time where we break bread together. We take this thing called communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, they were there for Passover. Remember that? And he says, hey, this this bread, this represents, this is a type of my body. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat of it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and said, this wine is, is a type of of my blood and that's being poured out for you and drink this in remembrance of me. Do this and as often as you do it, remember I'm coming back. I haven't left you, I, I, I have not abandoned you. And so we do this as a reminder of the fact that God has redeemed us, that he has restored us and that he is still rewriting our story. So as we take this, as the, as the elements come forward, I want us to reflect on that and remember that as we still live this thing out god is still telling that story and there might be elements that also involve with us examining ourselves and realizing that there are some conversations we need to have to make right with people to help rewrite their story things that we have said to them or done that need to be dealt with so we're going to go through the aisles and uh you're going to come through the middle aisles and then Take in your own time and leave out on the outer aisles. And this is just a moment for us to experience and to remember what Jesus has done. Remember that he's rewriting your story. Would you stand with me as we receive the elements? Father, thank you for rewriting our stories and for telling a better one. Would you, As we take these elements, would you remind us of the fact that you are still yet writing our story? In Jesus' name, amen.